Under the Bar podcast here with uh, Tom Hewitt and Rodin Dubois. Well, hello there, Tommy. That <laughs> was quite seductive of you, mate. Mm, uh, it's mm, a very mm. special and exciting episode, very. Rodin. I mean, usually we've got a, a seminar episodes uh, lining up left, right and centre. It's been a couple of weeks without one, so we thought we'd better chuck one yeah, in look, the mix. Yeah, look, why not? But this is a really uh, exciting one. and juicy one. Juicy. Now, the great Menno Henselmans, mm. who ha- has been on the podcast before, many, yep. many episodes many ago. Many moons ago. And someone who was widely respected as one of the, uh, I guess, the true thought leaders of the industry really yeah. I mean he's science based but he's got that lovely blend of what he's in, seen in, in, in the his trenches experience stuff. and what probabilities what things would work or could work and putting it all to the test yeah I love what he mentioned with the you know the Bayesian philosophy even though something may feel good we're not going to necessarily do that we're going to look at reason and what you know what science says will work best rather than letting our own uh, feelings influence things, which I think is a really interesting perspective, you know, which is what we do. But he will talk about all that stuff uh, on the very cool interview we've got coming up. That's right. Now, he's coming out to Australia for a, a seminar tour. Tour. That starts in Sydney at the Icon Performance Health Centre on... What are the dates, Jim? Uh, Saturday, September the 30th and Sunday, October the 1st. Obviously, two-day seminars. Then he goes down to Melbourne for the next weekend, October the 7th and 8th. And then he's across to Perth for October the 14th and 15th. With the guys, uh, Sam Hanna, Iron Game Fitness down in Melbourne. Love, yep. love, love your work, Sam. Shout out. And of course, uh, the Glossops over at Tough Team in Perth. So, uh, you know, Menno's uh, built quite a large, well, a very large following. Mm. He's got his course and there's a heap of good stuff. Yep, but this course. is the first time that he's been to Australia. Mm. It's a unique opportunity to pick his brains and, you know, experience Menno in the flesh. Yep. Some of the stuff that he'll be going through in this seminar there's a strength training component. Basically, he's looking at optimal training parameters. Yep. You know, they're your basics, your volume, your frequency, intensity, mm. rest periods, tempo, Sets, tempos, all, all, that stuff. all this kind of stuff. Yep. Then he's going to go into the, the pet topic, which is the high-frequency training. Uh-huh. And that's what we, we're going to have a chat to him about today when he comes on. Yeah, uh, get cool. a bit more detail on exactly what that means to him mm. and, uh, and how he applies the high-frequency training, mm-hmm. muscle-specific hypertrophy methods, advanced training techniques, periodization, and even exercise selection and a bit of gym technique. Oh. And that'll be very useful because uh, a little birdie tells me that uh, as part of his high-frequency methods, exercise selection and exercise variety becomes a key part of yeah. a, a key part of that. So that will have some that practical Look, application. He, he's really, uh, with my experience with him, he's really big on form as well. Like um, load is absolute, but you can't increase load with poor form. It's still got to be correct form for the given movement pattern. So. Yeah, I'd say that'd be invaluable seeing his perspective on uh, in the trenches and the gym type uh, technique as well. Now, on the nutritional side of things, and mm. uh, this is where I think a lot of people get great value out of what Menno does because he he can break down some very complicated yeah. topics into uh-huh. nicely uh, understandable chunks of information. Mm. Uh, un- understanding the human metabolism. This is a big one, Rudin, because there's a lot of polywaffle yeah. that goes on out there. There is. And Menno can, uh, can really break that down. So that will involve, you know, yo-yo dieting, reverse dieting, metabolic damage in inverted commas Mm, uh, set mm. point theory and much much more Mm -hmm. how to optimize energy intake for fat loss and how many times have we spoken about it Rod and that's the mothership 
the, the that's the Death Star. <laughs> the Millennium <laughs> Noggin heads straight to the Death Star yeah. of energy balance. Yeah. <laughs> Very good, mate. Yes. Uh, how to optimize your macros. And uh, now what we're going to talk to him about today and the other topic is ad-lib dieting. Mate, that's uh, easy peasy. Just eat according to hunger. Eat as much as you want. That's all it is to it. <laughs> but he'll break that down. Uh-huh. So uh, it's going to be a great seminar. Uh, really looking forward to it. Have a uh, you know, listen to the interview, see what you think about it, make yep. some notes, and um, if you feel like it's something you'd like to invest in further, you can contact the Icon Performance Health Centre. Yep. Emily there will sort you out. There's yep. probably a range of different Look, discounts and jump, various jump, things. Yeah, jump yeah. on the jump on the website, click uh, seminar, then bookings. Uh, maybe rattle off a bull's deep code and see if it gets you any discount. But uh, <laughs> yeah. you never know in the big smoke. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Uh, any final thoughts before we go to the man himself, mate? Uh, I'll just say. Uh, uh, for anyone that does uh, like what I do and to agree what you do, I mean, we uh, indirectly have been influenced by, um, I've been uh, mentoring with Manor for quite some time, done his PT course a couple of times. So anyone that uh, thinks what I do is okay, um, would be foolish not to consider uh, coming along to the mm. seminar. To, I've got although, although they probably go and say, what the hell? This is all the stuff. Rawdon is, is Menno. He's got nothing original. So Menno actually, Dubois. no, like don't don't bother going. Just yeah. sit this one out, boys and girls. Just you keep paying me for consults. Yeah. And I'll keep regurgitating the Henselman uh, so you can uh, keep paying me. <laughs> nice yes. one. All, all right, right, Cam, well, uh, we'll have a sting and then we'll go to Menno. Menno. <laughs> Some of your best work there, Cam. Very nice. Rockstar. Now, uh, Rawdon, it has come to that time in the episode where we have our aforementioned, very mm. special guest, mm. Menno mm. Henselmans. The, uh, Round two. The gypsy of nutrition and training these it, days. He is, mate. Traveling uh, traveling the world, working what? online, doing what he does. Yeah, I guess that's what you can do when you uh, structure a really nice uh, business model and you've got some great content that people really value. Yeah. It's exciting stuff. So he's in Bali at the moment. Yeah. As we mentioned at the top of the show, he is coming out to Australia in just a couple of weeks for a seminar tour. You've got Sydney, Melbourne and Perth. He's out here for three weeks, starting in Sydney on the 30th of September, which is really exciting. There's some great looking content in the, in yeah, the course. And, Extensive. Uh, and first time in Australia too. Yeah, which is exciting. And Rodan, you've obviously been doing some uh, fairly regular uh, Mate, mentoring with, with Menno. I have. I've been harassing Menno for uh, probably a couple of years, I think it's been Menno. But uh, I've done his PT... Uh, PT course that we'll yep. probably have a chat about with him. I've done that twice. Uh, it was so good the first time. I did it the second time. Probably because the first time I didn't do all the you didn't know the weekly it. sort <laughs> of things. All, yeah. and everything was there and I learned a lot but then had a, another bite of the cherry with that one. But yeah, but then also a lot of uh, uh, consults uh, over the last couple of years and then um, of late uh, weekly for the last yeah. uh, couple of months. But uh, yeah, a really, really significant influence on what I do today. Um, so yeah, really excited to have him, uh, to see him in, in the flesh in Australia shortly and, um, yeah. and today interviewing him. Menno, thank you very much for your time and welcome back to the podcast. Hey guys, my pleasure. Tell me, Menno, you're in uh, Bali now in a lovely villa looking mm. out over the rice, rice paddies. Yeah, nice. Early in the morning. Well, they not, might not be rice paddies. We're not sure. But um, <laughs> obviously, you've, you know, you're a pretty successful guy, Menno, and I always like asking our, our guests how they sort of structure their lives. Well, what's the morning routine like for <laughs> you when you get up to be productive and get all this work done? How, how do you structure things? I was just talking to Ron about this uh, during our last uh, yeah. consult. Uh, most people have the idea that because I'm... Uh, uh, nomad or Egyptian, as you call it. Uh, it's the same thing, I guess, that um, I travel all around the world. I mean, I've lived in uh, over 40 countries now. And um, awesome. 
you know that it's like I'm sitting at the pool or I'm at the beach and uh, I'm <laughs> climbing mountains, uh, diving with dolphins, and I do that stuff. But it's mostly uh, that I get myself to a certain location like Bali, where there's a lot of really cool stuff to do at close distance. Yeah. And most of my days, like the vast, vast majority, are work, work, work. So I, I get yeah. up, uh, which is about uh, nine in the morning. Yeah. So this is basically it's almost the first thing I do today. This interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then I reserve the mornings for my most uh, creative work, uh, writing, and um, so the articles, writing for the PT course, updating that, and um, I'm now working on a book yeah. about uh, self-control, so that's also why I do the writing for that. Mm. And then when I start, when I sort of my, uh, my creative juices run out, yeah. then um, I uh, switch on email accounts and uh, social media and stuff. And then the messages flood in, so then it's it's uh, the end of uh, creative time. So these days, I tend to uh, get over 200 messages per day, uh, pretty consistently. Yeah. Like I, I cannot even use uh, Facebook with my research team or the PT course anymore for notifications because I run out of the notifications on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I even have, have several inboxes that I have to structure with forwarding uh, things, um, so that everything ends up in the right place and. Yeah try to shuffle more to my administration now. Uh, but I, I make sure to email all of my clients every day, basically. So I'm yeah. still, I still do full-time coaching. And um, basically when I also uh, run tired of that, uh, this is around the time I have my first meal of the day now, which is um, about two in the afternoon. So intermittent fasting, I guess you would call it. No. And then I, I work out, yeah, yeah. Um, say four, uh, after that, post-workout meal, and then uh, later at night, uh, one last meal. In between that, I do another uh, bout of answering emails or messages on social media and stuff. And uh, then I make sure always to have at least a, a wind-down routine. I usually watch a series with my girlfriend, and um, what, bedtime, rinse, rinse, repeat. What are you uh, watching at the moment, mate? Ga- Game of Thrones? Or you've already done that, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, I actually had... To this night, I downloaded the last season of Game of Thrones. Ooh, it's an exciting time. Ooh. Yeah, Tommy's already done that. Uh, I think that's really awesome. Um, no spoilers. For, yeah, for our, um, our listeners. And, and one of the reasons why I do respect you, aside from your knowledge, but you actually, you still train every day. It doesn't matter where you are. You always do your training. And you, and you actually... Um, you know, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but you, you know, it's a high frequency style of training. It's not the easiest way to train, but um, you always make sure you get it done and uh, and you move some decent numbers as well because you're not a big guy. Like, uh, how much how much are you weighing at the moment? I'm a good 90 kilos. Um, well, that's decent. In cont- decent, uh, decent. Yeah. Contest shape, yeah. I'm like 80, 85, 86 when truly ripped. 87 yep. maybe after a really good carb load. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's decent. But you're still yeah. in the trenches, uh, re- you know, chasing the numbers and uh, mm. training every day. I think that's awesome, man. That's good. And Mano, when you're when you're taking advantage of that creative space Juices. in the morning, if you're on a, in a good flow and a rhythm, will you keep running that for a little while, or there's a certain time where you've just got to get to the emails and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I'm really flexible with that. Mm. Um, if I have, you know, some days I'm really caught up on something, especially an article. Yep. Most articles, um, when Mind you, I've done all the research beforehand and I have, okay, this is how I want to put it down. Usually I have the structure in mind already and it's just uh, the writing and I'm still really excited about it. I, 
ideally finish the article in one go. One sitting. Like a one, yeah. in one sweep, yeah. That's uh, nice. how I like to work most, because as soon as I uh, abandon any project, um, and I've sort <laughs> of determined for myself already um, how, how everything is, then I lose interest, which is really a, a big obstacle for me at the moment. Yeah. So I like doing uh, the seminars and stuff, but every seminar and every BT course, I, I always focus on the new stuff, because that is of, of most interest to me. Yeah. yeah. So I'm always trying to put out new contents, and uh, you'll see in the in the seminars I give, if you look at the topics uh, on yeah. my website that I've presented, um, I try to talk about new stuff almost every time. Like most presenters, you know, they have the same lecture. Rehash it, um, yeah. Yeah, you know, you see these guys, I see I see my colleagues at, you know, big conferences um, so pretty regularly, and it's like, ah, I know this presentation, oh, I know that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. We'll get to the, uh, the presentation, the, in, uh, the, the seminar in just one second, man, but one last question. Any supplements or nootropics? Do you use anything for cognitive function? Come on, Tom. You want to know whether he uses modafinil. <laughs> now, Tom had a bad, bad experience on modafinil. What about yourself, mate? Are you uh, any of those nootropics to uh, get those juices flowing? I have a few, yeah. Um, Ooh, nicotine gum, to... occasionally. Ah. Um, works really well for me. I have the most non-addictive personality uh, ever, probably. So <laughs> uh, I often actually forget it's there. So... I, I intend to use it like it helps me work. It's really, really bad for creative work. Uh, don't use it when you're trying to write something. But it's really good for relatively straightforward stuff. Um, the, the emails and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, emails, um, mm. non-difficult client emails. You know, most questions are the same questions you get yeah. um, from different clients. Uh, it's really good for that because it sort of gives you a very deep focus. It's like it takes away um, everything but that one thing you think about, which yeah. is good in terms of you know adhering to uh, being productive and doing that one thing but it really limits your your frame of mind uh, I think it really uh, reduces creative creativity and associative thinking and is that just wow. the nicotine the active is it the nicotine yeah. that's doing that yeah it's nicotine wow. yeah really uh, underrated supplement I think one <laughs> of the few that actually has good support for it but wow. you know it's it's addictive hmm. uh, although I have to say that you know I'm conservative when recommending it to people, obviously mm. it's nicotine. You know, we know smoking is super addictive, mm. but the um, the peak absorption rate and uh, the peak concentration that you get with uh, inhalation, like with smoking, especially combined with uh, all the other compounds mm. um, in it, is a really, really different story compared to oral absorption that you get from nicotine gum, which is also delayed. I mean, you. I, you park it in your mouth for like 30 minutes, sometimes like a four milligram gum. I can chew on that for like five hours. So that's yeah. um, the research also showing that people auto-regulate this quite well. So you sort of uh, titrate your own dosage medically. Yeah. Um, and I noticed that you indeed do this automatically. Like when you sort of, you're in a, a nice state of deep concentration, you stop chewing and at some point you you need a new fix, so you, you chew again. Mm. If I look at my clients, uh, I haven't seen anyone got addicted to it. In fact, the main story with most of my clients is that, you know, I always warn about it. You know, in theory, this stuff is addictive. Um, you don't want to use too much of it. Be, you know, be warned that, uh, that yada, yada. Um, almost all of them say, like, actually, I sort of forgot it's there. Um, same, exactly what I um, experienced myself. Like, okay, yeah, yeah it, it, it sort of works. Uh, it's, you know, it's not magic. But uh, it definitely it does something. Um, it's not the most pleasant feeling, though. Like it's not really. Um, it improves your concentration, 
but it's not a very um, you don't get a happy feeling from it. You know, it's not yeah. uh, it's not heroin. Yeah. So, mm. uh, so most people sort of forget it's there or they use it occasionally and then semi regularly. I've never had anyone had trouble quitting it. Okay. So I'm not really sure it's that addictive. I'm going to try uh, with the uh, with my uh, athlete updates that I do on a Sunday. Big day for me. Maybe a bit of a. We're talking about this before we went to air, Tommy. Yeah. Maybe a bit of a bit nicotine, of nicotine gum, gum before the modafinil. Maybe modafinil and the, the nicotine, nicotine gum. <laughs> that could work well. So aside from the nicotine gum, Menno, anything else? Uh, yeah, I use, I use modafinil occasionally when I can get it. Uh, yeah. It's not in too many countries, but yeah. um, the problem with modafinil. So modafinil, for those that don't know, is like. Um, Really, really roughly, it's like a super long-acting uh, form of caffeine. So, in research, we actually find that once you are not sleep-deprived, it doesn't do it doesn't do jack for uh, improving cognitive functioning. Um, it's only it only counters the effects of sleep deprivation. But for many people, you know, they are basically chronically sleep-deprived, uh, right. especially those with office work and the like. So then, it, it does function as a, a nootropic for all intents and purposes. The problem is that the half-life is so long that you know, 24 hours after you still have some effect, mm. which means that when you're going to bed, even if you take it first thing in the morning, it will impair sleep quality the next night, which means you're more sleep deprived the day after mm. and you're more inclined to use more modafinil. So yeah. it's not truly addicting, but you do end up, um, or you can easily end up in a negative spiral where you're more and more reliant on modafinil and you feel like it's working great, and it is, but the reason you need it is because you were started on what I'm going to have to in the first place. Yeah, interesting. Vicious circle. Yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. stay off that one, Rod. Yeah, yeah. I don't um, yeah, I don't know. And that's not uh, dose-related? You can't do like a, a 50 milligram, and, and obviously you get less stimulation, but, but then potentially less uh, sleep de- deprivation because of it? Yeah, but I think um, w- once you're not super sleep-deprived, um, you need about 200 milligrams to get any effect, basically, any noticeable effect. So, kind of right. hard. Uh, I definitely would always recommend taking it first thing in the morning. Like the, actually, the only time I use it is when I'm super jet lagged, uh, yeah. especially for certain conferences. Like they fly you over to um, to another country and you have like an eight-hour uh, jet lag, and yeah. you wake up and you feel like uh, you haven't slept for four days. Mm-hmm. Then I take modafinil. Okay, uh, you know, pr- do my lectures and um, crash afterwards. Yeah. Uh, other than that, I, I don't like it that much. Uh, caffeine, of course, mostly just coffee. Yeah. Um, I think the main thing there too is uh, people abuse it, and uh, I always point to alcohol and caffeine as the reasons, and smoking really, that other drugs are illegal, even though uh, physiologically they're not that much more harmful. Yeah. Um, or harmful at all. Yeah. And um, people use so much of it that they get super addicted, not addicted in the heroin sense, like junkie on the streets doing everything to get caffeine fix, but uh, addicted in the sense of needing uh, constantly heavier dosages to stay functional and having such high tolerance that they can actually take coffee and fall asleep afterwards. Then you know you're at the level where the caffeine isn't doing anything to improve your mood. Uh, You just need the caffeine to function normally. So... Well, it's a big sp- difference there in terms of if the caffeine is actually sp- helping you or if mm. it's just fighting your withdrawal symptoms. Mm. Yes. Which is actually what the main research problem was with, with caffeine. Like they thought, okay, this stuff is amazing, but they tested it on sleep-deprived subjects or people that uh, were chronic uh, caffeine users and then they had a washout period. So they were in a state of 
caffeine withdrawal. And then they tested it, and they're like, oh, this works amazingly well. And <laughs> yeah, new right. research that yeah. controls for this actually finds that caffeine doesn't do much at all for strength training performance. It's almost purely a mental effect. I must say, Menno, I, um, you probably are vaguely aware, because we are friends on Facebook, that I don't mind a coffee or two. And uh, it was funny, one, um, one morning I think I was particularly busy, and I, I think from memory I do make choices not to have coffee from time to time, and I, I don't recall it being an issue, but this one particular morning I, I didn't, and, and I had these headaches and this nausea, and I felt like going home, and uh, couldn't work out. I thought, ooh, coming down with something, then I just realized I hadn't had a coffee, and uh, <laughs> had a coffee and I was good to go. So, yeah, you might be onto something there. Yep, that's that's how most of my clients uh, experience it. <laughs> yeah. Like there are a few a few pieces of advice that almost no one will just instantly take from you. You know, you you've got these clients that are in truly one hundred percent lifestyle change mode, and you, everything you tell them it's boom lifestyle change, and they're like awesome. Yep. Uh, most clients are more like you know they want to do it a bit more stepwise, mm. and they they value your advice, but they also they also hear other things. So you know. They would like to balance it out, want a bit more information. Mm. And caffeine, stopping caffeine or limiting dosage is really, really one of those things. Because yeah. yeah. it sucks. Yeah, man. Yeah, very funny. Yeah. All right. Where okay. are we going to go, Tommy? Well, Menno, uh, one of the topics that you've got in your in the strength training component uh, listed for the seminar and something that obviously Rawdon has touched on and we've spoken about on the podcast, uh, he and I at times, is the high-frequency training. Yeah. So maybe we could start there and perhaps for the benefit of our listener who maybe hasn't been exposed to the principle, if you could start by just um, just giving an overview as, as to the concept of high-frequency training and, and where it sits in your methodology. And I'll just jump in there and uh, say, because this did come to a head, Tommy, recently. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure where it was, Mano, because this was a, an organized uh, meeting of the minds, I think, at a, some sort of symposium, symposium. but it was a... Uh, it was a debate with uh, the Dr. Israel, who we've had on the program and uh, one of our uh, revered, most revered episodes. Um, obviously, you know, you'll acknowledge a lot of respect for Dr. Israel, but you and he uh, went toe to toe. You both uh, presented your cases and then uh, and then had a bit of a discussion afterwards. And I think Schoenfeld was there and um, a few others, and they uh, put their two cents worth in. So I would have been, I would have loved to have been a, a fly on the wall and heard that debate. Mm. But. Uh, yeah, maybe we could talk about that and um, the pros and cons and, and what fundamentally the high-frequency training is. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, indeed, I debated this with uh, Mike Isratel, uh, who I, at that conference, actually became uh, good friends with. Yeah. And uh, we do have different views on that, uh, especially for the, the super advanced athletes uh, and naturals. But um, let's start with the concept. High-frequency training... Um, to dispel the notion because uh, that most people think it means you go to the gym often mm. with high frequency training there are uh, three types of training frequency you have to distinguish from each other one is total training frequency that means how often in the week are you going to the gym yep so if you go to the gym monday wednesday friday your total training frequency is free yep then you have frequency per body part and this is the most relevant metric from a bodybuilding point of view it means how often in a week are you training each muscle group yep. so even though your total training frequency may only be free which is now well, i say only free and my clients i generally say if you're not going to the gym at least three times a week then my methods are a bit overkill for you you know find you can find someone that is more affordable and has you know more of a lifestyle gen pop kind of uh, approach yep um, so I generally treat that as sort of the minimum. 
But if you're doing full body every session, you still have a total training frequency of three, which is quite high because the typical bro split where you hit each muscle group once a week, even if you're going to the gym every day, hmm. has a, a training frequency per muscle group of just one. Yeah. Uh, and the third one, which is especially relevant for powerlifters, but also has some relevance for bodybuilders, I think, is frequency per exercise. So you have um, uh, mad kind of programs like squat every day, which means uh, your total training frequency is seven. You're squatting every day. Your frequency per muscle group is also seven because you're hitting the same body parts and your frequency per exercise is also seven. Yep. Um, my experience with those kind of methods has not been very good. Uh, for powerlifters, it can be beneficial, uh, mostly for the the select few who have iron connective tissue and mm. can handle it. Yeah. Most people get injured and don't really get any um, further gains once they start squatting more than about three times a week. Um, also generally not impressed with the kind of light work uh, that in my experience just tends to be um, still hard enough to aggravate injuries, but doesn't really do anything for an advanced trainee in terms of actually uh, developing more muscle growth. Yeah. So, yeah, my method is more uh, a lot more variation, um, and a crucial part. Actually, the, the one principle of my uh, philosophy to training frequency is that training frequency should increase or can increase at least with training age. So, an untrained individual, uh, we have several studies on this can actually do perfectly well training a muscle group just once a week. Because mm. there's the adaptation process afterwards, they get a huge amount of muscle damage. They have um, as a very robust, long increase in protein synthesis post-workout. We know that it can last over 72 hours and with appropriate increases in training volume, that may last the whole week. Yep. Um, you quickly run out of that stage though, because we see that in the first few weeks of training, uh, muscle damage greatly dissipates, which means that protein breakdown and synthesis, accordingly, they go down a lot. Uh, and there is a decrease, especially in the uh, non-myofibular uh, protein compounds, so like mitochondria and sarcoplasm. Sarcoplasm actually still debatable, but at least the mitochondria. Mm. Um, so the, the training response becomes more focused on purely the strength aspect, like the first times you're squatting, you know, it's quite a cardiovascular stimulus as well. Mm. And over time, it becomes more and more purely strength oriented. So we see the response mainly maintained for the myofibrillar factions, the actual muscle tissue mm -hmm. uh, that you're building. Uh, and what this all means is that, you know, the, the SRA curve, the strength recovery adaptation curve afterwards doesn't last nearly as long anymore once you start becoming a, a bit more trained. Mm -hmm. and. We see that in most research, within about 24 hours, um, recovery and uh, most of the protein synthesis is pretty much done. And this is a big um, shock, I think, to many people because they've, um, they've been beaten the crap out of by the overtraining fairy. And they think <laughs> if you hit a muscle group more than you know once every five days or three days, <laughs> then you cannot recover and um, you'll overtrain. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, hard work pays off. Yeah. And um, I've seen this, you know, they, it's funny because there are a lot of things where you have science, you need science to show you the way. And there are a lot of things when it comes to possibility where anecdotes perfectly suffice. So a lot of people will say, um, yeah, you know, if you train full body every day, there is no way you can do this in progress. Well, I've done so with dozens of clients and yeah. they perfect, they have astounding progress. They all say this has been the best program they're on. It's like they're 
a newbie lifter again. Yeah. Um, I train full body myself most of the time. Outside of like the last two months, I've tried experimenting with lower training frequency uh, to see maybe you know um, if I was uh, becoming too dogmatic in my approach. I think it's always good to try new stuff. Um, I've, I'm still of the opinion that eye frequency, for me at least, full body every day, is the best way to go. Um, but it really depends on your training status. So, yeah. No, I'll, as I was saying. Once you get a bit more advanced, you want to get to the two times a week training frequency. That is pretty much a minimum for anyone uh, that considers him or herself somewhat strength trained. Mm. After that, the research becomes a lot um, uh, more scarce. Um, but we have the Norwegian Training Frequency Project, where they had uh, really advanced powerlifters, the national powerlifting team in Norway, uh, really advanced guys, also almost certainly clean. They are very, very anti-steroid, like not um, you know, natural bodybuilder on Facebook, mm. clean, yeah. but actually um, <laughs> dirty, natural. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, uh, they found that basically the exact same program, volume equated, three sessions versus six sessions. Uh, six session group did really well. Three session group um, had the gains you would expect from someone uh, at the national powerlifting team, which means basically jack all. So. Yeah, uh, big difference there. Uh, even though it didn't reach statistical significance actually for some measures, but if you look at the the raw data, then it's it's it, it's really the story I just said. It's like the difference between making good progress for an advanced trainee and just maintaining. Yeah, I'll jump in there and say that uh, obviously influenced from what I've learned from you, Menno, but is it is something that I have implemented with my demographic, which would be the more advanced. Uh, trainees and it seems to be going um, really well with an undulating uh, intensity throughout the week as well so they're going through lower rep ranges and you know, medium rep ranges and high rep ranges mm -hmm. in, in the course of the week and um, let's just uh, before we move on from this uh, the, the frequency side of things um, Dr. Isratel obviously had a uh, you know his point of view and um, I'm sure he put a compelling argument forward but but his uh, which a lot of our listeners could relate to was along the lines of well it's a it's a more trained individual. They're going to be far stronger. They're going to create so much more disruption on homeostasis. They're going to warrant a longer recovery period. And I think he said that in 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 practice for him anyway, he's seen that you know an inability to recover um, in that uh, shorter time frame. It just needed a longer um, a longer duration to recover. Um, but you, you haven't found this and, and you were suggesting that because I think one of the arguments he put forward that the nervous system, the CNS, just couldn't handle it. And, yeah. and your point, I think, was, well, it's a peripheral uh, fatigue, a, a muscle specific, and it's not a full body nervous system fatigue. So for that very reason, you can actually um, hit, hit with a much higher frequency you want to talk about that a little bit uh, in regards to the point he was making there? Yeah, I think one of the <clears throat> the key um, theoretical difference between our approaches is that uh, he indeed is of the opinion that um, your your recovery needs increase with training age. Mm. And I'm of the opinion that they, they decrease. Mm. Uh, we, I think we see the decrease in uh, the muscle protein synthesis literature, like I said. Yep. Um, the, the, actual SRA curve, the actual process of muscle growth that we see, we can measure this in terms of protein synthesis, mm -hmm. which correlates really well if you do it uh, longitudinally with muscle growth, because it literally is the, the building of the new proteins. Mm -hmm. um, this, this decreases. 
Uh, we also see in the damage uh, literature on muscle damage, a really great study, um, very revolutionary stuff by uh, Damas in uh, 2012, I think it was, um, or maybe a bit later even. Yeah, 2016 actually. Okay. And they um, they found that muscle damage decreases greatly uh, during a training program, and this is the reason for uh, much of the decrease in protein synthesis we see. So at first, you know, you have a lot of muscle damage. Um, and also, this is also why I think that muscle damage is really overrated. Many people, uh, they design their training programs based on um, how they feel. Yeah. Uh, most people do things based on how they feel. And one of the key things of the Bayesian method is that you do things based on reason, even if it doesn't feel right or it's yeah. counterintuitive. You go with the data. And muscle damage is, you know, now we say that muscle damage is a, a mechanism of muscle growth, but I think really it's more of a rationalization of the idea that we're simply <clears throat> simply chasing soreness still, yeah. just like you know bodybuilders used to chase the pump, and now we say metabolic stress is a mechanism of muscle growth, uh, which also don't fully agree with, but yeah. that's another topic. And um, when you do a really heavy uh, workout and you get really sore and there's a lot of muscle damage, they're not the same thing by the way, soreness and muscle damage, but after the first workout you get a lot of both. Then. Uh, most of the increase in protein synthesis that we see, so yeah, you get this upregulation uh, of satellite cells and we see a lot of protein synthesis, but it's mostly just there to rebuild the muscle that you have uh, broken down. So you get just a large spike in protein breakdown and net protein balance doesn't actually increase from uh, the muscle damage. So you're basically, when you have a training program like that, and that is, I think, the the reason that many people's approach to higher frequency training uh, doesn't work is that they still focus on chasing fatigue yeah. and not on chasing muscle stimulation. Yeah, yeah. I think Mike does this quite well actually. Um, he, he, is, um, he doesn't chase uh, muscle damage particularly, he goes for muscle stimulation but he definitely has a lot more muscle damaging techniques in his programs than I uh, typically recommend. Yeah. And that is, I think, a reason why higher frequency training won't work for these individuals and why people that try bro training, you know, with drop sets and yeah. uh, reps and stuff, and they try doing a protocol like that more than once a week or, you know, more than two times a week. And yeah, it doesn't work because yeah. you need to really focus on what stimulates the muscle mm. and aim for that high increase in protein synthesis mm. without doing a lot of damage. damage. Yeah. And it's that that uh, analogy, uh, stimulate, don't annihilate. Mm. You know, it's um, it really holds true with the high frequency style of training. Yeah, uh, A couple of questions, Menno. If we look at the three aspects to frequency: the total per week, mm. uh, frequency per body part, and frequency per exercise. Is there any way that um, by manipulating the, the exercises per week you can buy yourself a little more room to to expose a muscle group to more frequency? just by changing up movement patterns? So that's what your programs yeah, actually yeah, do. Yeah, I think it's it? important to, uh, to induce enough variation in there. Um, the reason actually Berger, Fagerli and I experimented with higher frequency training a lot at first, and it took a lot of time before we really got it down. Um, the reason my programs weren't working as well as his, because we compared notes often, uh, was that initially I tried to go with more like the squat every day kind of approach and try to sort of condense a certain program into um, uh, just like one or two days and rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Yeah. And it can work quite well in certain scenarios, but uh, many people do uh, have the fatigue catch up on them, uh, and especially in the connective tissues. 
I still don't I don't think the nervous system is really the issue. I think that just like overtraining, central nervous system fatigue is really, really overblown. And many people again are just they're chasing their feelings, you know, they're tired from a workout and uh, a lot of coaches fill them with these ridiculous uh, wishful thinking notions that <laughs> at the end of the workout you should feel better than before. No, then you just didn't train hard. Exactly. Um, if you had exactly. a really proper workout, then you are fatigued, you are exhausted. That is normal. That is yeah. the definition of being fatigued. That's how it feels. Part of the process. Um, yeah. yeah. But um, so I think it's mostly that uh, and not really um, that fatigue is that, uh, central nervous fatigue is that. Um, relevant in practice. I think it exists, uh, but we mostly really see it in ultra marathon runners and scenarios like that in research. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I will chime in and say what I'm doing at the moment is probably a, a closer uh, variation to what you initially initially did, Menno, with uh, I'm using um, you know one or two different workouts and then taking it through a variety of rep ranges and you know touch wood so far so good it seems to be working quite well but i certainly see the validity in um just having that what tommy was alluding to and what you actually do currently is that that slight variation just to t you know uh, stimulate the connective tissue from a and the muscle from a slightly different, different angle, angle yeah. just to spread the load over time definitely interesting so if someone's listening to this memo and they're piecing together a bit of a plan in their head and they go i might give this high frequency training to go mm. uh, have a nice uh, spread of uh, frequency per body part different exercises what should you talk about the feeling how they should feel and we're looking for stimulate not annihilate mm. what should you feel like after a, a high frequency workout and also menno uh minimum like can you just do half a set is that enough every day or um is there like one set two set minimum where where should our our listeners uh start i guess per, per body part per exercise yeah, if you're, if you're, so you're talking about uh, real, really advanced training, sleep, stress, nutrition, that kind of stuff is all in order. Yeah. Uh, then you're looking at an approach where a full body workout every single day um, is a very viable uh, training program. Yep. I would argue probably optimal for most people uh, if, if genetics allow it. Uh, some people just have really poor recovery. Like if you're the typical hard gainer, yeah. maybe not. Um, but sometimes hard gainers just need to do more work. So mm. it can still be. Uh, it can still be right for you, um, but what you're looking at is a training program where you're, you're hitting everybody, uh, every muscle group every day, but with different exercises, different rep ranges, or at least variation. Um, I found that um, variation in exercises is uh, probably most effective to ward off um, fatigue and overreaching, um, but with guys that recover fast, a two split can work quite well if you vary up rep ranges and stuff. Yeah. Um, so. Generally, you're looking at two to four different days. Occasionally, I'll, I'll design a five split, but when that's usually for powerlifters, and then I make sure that the squat is still in there at least twice uh, or three times a week. Uh, for advanced guys, I generally like to have them squat three times a week, bench press twice or so, uh, maybe three times as well, um, and deadlift once or twice. Um, I think deadlift is one of the few exceptions where we actually have a study uh, showing that deadlift induces more prolonged fatigue than other exercises. Yeah. And I think that is not uh, anything super magical about it. It might be actual uh, central nervous system fatigue where because so much of the body is trained that at that point, you know, you are coming to the level where central fatigue might be a factor. But I think really most of it is connective tissue damage. The deadlift just takes a huge toll on connective tissue throughout the whole body, basically, mm. uh, especially uh, near the spine and anything where 
that damages spinal areas may um, interfere with uh, neural signaling throughout mm. pretty much the entire body. Mm. And we know that um, pain in general uh, can uh, decrease muscle activation levels. So it might be that, uh, you know, it's not the brain that it's not really central um, fatigue in that sense, but there is something systemic um, due to uh, spinal uh, damage or tissue surrounding it yeah. that may be causing some of so, I mean, yeah, it. Um, you're looking sense. at something like two to five splits, um, and you're looking at exercise volume. Occasionally, I'll go as low as one set. Usually, that is for injury management and people that just cannot. Um, they are super, super fast switch dominant, super explosive guys, um, or at least, you know, based on those measures, I think they are fast switch because you cannot really measure it accurately, of course, without doing a biopsy on them. And um, they they just need um, like one set, and after that, their muscle, their uh, reps drop off by more than 50%. Those guys, you know, elite sprinters may benefit really well from just doing one set, and any more would just induce needless fatigue. Yep. Most people, the vast majority of trainees, need at least two sets, I would say, um, to actually properly stimulate a muscle and get enough total weekly volume in, because mm -hmm. uh, total weekly volume is still, um, you know, the more important measure once your training frequency is at least in the okay level. Yeah. And I think that a lot of benefits of higher training frequency are um, that it's easy to increase total training volume. Yeah. Uh, I'll expound on that later, but so you're looking at a program uh, like that, few different exercises, two to five splits, uh, at least two sets a day um, that may go up to three to four. Um, and then you're getting at women uh, tend to do better when you're bulking. Um, sleeps really good and stuff. You get to higher levels. People on gear can tolerate um, like six six sets, maybe more. Yeah. Um, highest I've generally gone. I've tried experimenting uh, myself actually uh, without being on gear, um, doing a few months, two months each of um, two sets, four sets, uh, six sets, eight sets, and ten sets a day. <laughs> and interestingly. Um, 10 sets a day is quite doable. You're in the gym for three hours a day. Um, <laughs> not the most um, exciting workouts, but um, also think it didn't, it certainly didn't work well. Um, but you know, no magical um, overtraining uh, nonsense. Uh, didn't impair my sleep, uh, didn't really do anything. I just, I think I mostly just struggled to maintain strength on most exercises. Uh, I had to do, cope with a lot of injuries yeah. um, and probably lost some strength due to that um, in terms of 1RM strength. So no bueno, but uh, nothing um, nothing disastrous. Yeah. Uh, eight sets, kind of a similar story, much more doable. Six sets for me uh, worked uh, okay if as long as I kept an eye out on my connective tissues and I was bulking when cutting, absolutely no bueno. Yeah. Um, four sets also for me uh, pushing it, pushing it, certain exercises, certain body parts hand, handle it, others don't. Uh, most for me is like the, the two to four range, with I guess three being about average. Um, I think for a lot of people will fall in that range, but uh, it's quite a wide spectrum as as yeah. you can tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because people do vary quite a bit. All right, well, that's high frequency there. So we got a bit of an insight into high frequency in our listeners if they want to tackle that. And uh, I can speak firsthand, doing it personally myself. And, um, yeah, I mean, I can back it up every day. Yeah. Uh, a little boring, but uh, my one anyway, because I don't vary the exercises. But, uh, yeah, can't ra rave about it enough. 
Okay, so we'll um, we will get on to some nutritional stuff in a second. Just one question, a little bit left of sender. Menno, you mentioned uh, with the hypertrophy, the myofibrillar, which is obviously that, that muscle tissue, and then the sarcoplasmic is what we associate with more cell swelling and that kind of stuff. But you, you just spoke about the sarcoplasm. What is the sarcoplasm and what is the benefit that that has to performance and why does the body make that adaptation just just for my own benefit because i don't really understand that yeah it's mostly uh, the fluids and uh, things like glycogen are in there um, it's more relevant for uh, endurance energy production and just accommodating the um, the myofibers the actual contractile tissue in providing energy um, so it's not directly relevant uh, for strength uh, what we see in the literature is that it seems to grow pretty much. Uh, some people say there isn't any sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. Uh, that's definitely wrong. There is sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, but it's probably not actually um, in practically significant measures possible, maybe with gear, um, to induce sarcoplasmic hypertrophy or myofibular hypertrophy preferentially. So they sort of grow in the same ratio, generally. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's just something, it's just the structure of your your muscle tissue you cannot really do um, uh, much about it, nor would you want to it's just you know that's it's the, just the structure yeah. muscle tissue yeah. has when it functions well okay so it is it is actually it's not just some sort of floating fluid with holding water and glycogen it is actually part of muscle tissue it actually grows yeah. the sarcoplasm yeah. grows yeah it's part of it okay cool yeah. no worries <laughs> All right, I just... Uh, Dotted eyes, cross T's on that one. Yeah, Very good. Very nice. It. Right, now, Menno, there's a heap of stuff that you're going to go through in terms of the nutritional side of things, you know, starting with the human metabolism and uh, working all the way down to macros and all kinds of stuff. But something yeah. that uh, you've got listed there that Rodan and I would be very interested to talk about because, yeah. well, you know, Rodan's always talking about measuring everything to the yes. nth, nth degree, the calories and the mm, macros mm, and vegetables mm. and everything. That's it. But uh, this concept of uh, ad-lib dieting yeah. and uh, I guess a more intuitive approach to, uh, to nutrition. So can you give mm. us um, a bit of an insight as to what that, uh, what that concept involves from your perspective? And also, Menno, uh, you can let listeners know that you actually use, because our listeners might be saying, yeah, but, you know, comp prep, you can't do stuff like that. You actually did use this for competition preparation when you uh, prepped yourself for, I think it was the WBFF uh, fitness yeah. division, yeah. Yeah, sort of the, the men's physique variant of uh, uh, WBFF, yeah? Yeah, 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 yeah. awesome. Uh, I went at lib, um, which means you don't track your macros, uh, but you pay close attention to uh, your appetite and uh, food choices and nutrient timing, um, which means you indirectly still monitor your macros. Uh, yeah. You just don't actually track them and measure them, and you don't stop eating uh, when um, you know you've hit the macro target. You stop eating when you're full. Uh, it's a very pleasant, uh, much more lifestyle-friendly approach. I eat at lip most of the time. Um, it is absolutely not intuitive, though. Uh, I would say that a lot of people uh, and even researchers um, call it intuitive eating. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm really not a fan of the term because um, a lot of people, also clients, when they hear me talk about uh, this in, in uh, interviews, <laughs> they think at lip dieting is sort of a cop-out. It means, oh, so uh, I do the same stuff, but I don't track my macros anymore and I can eat as much as I want. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> but, uh, Sign me up. It, you need to I mean, there needs to be some form of control in the diet. So energy, you know, calories matter. Hmm. So you need a different form of restriction, which may come in the form of food choices. It may come in the forms of 
monitoring the variety of different meals, ensuring a high satiety index, uh, manipulating food cues, serving sizes, um, plate size, uh, even mental tricks, uh, working on your, your mindset, those kind of things, meticulous nutrient timing to reduce hunger pangs, yeah. um, using spices uh, to control your appetite, um, stimulants can also play a role, uh, like nicotine, uh, it's, a, it's uh, an appetite suppressant, it doesn't work too well in my experience, but uh, not nearly as well as smoking, but um, <laughs> and uh, I don't smoke by the way, uh, but but all your clients, you see do. in smokers and literature, that's, that's pretty huge. Yeah. And um, uh, so you do, you do need to exercise control and you have a lot less flexibility with your diet. So um, even though there might not be a limit on calories or something, you will have limits in terms of food choices for different yeah. meals. So McDonald's and stuff are, are definitely out of the question. If you eat at Lip McDonald's, you are going to overeat. There is no question about it. Yeah. Unless you have uh, the appetite of an eight-year-old sarcopenic woman then uh, <laughs> it's not uh, gonna work. So oh, um, okay. it's definitely not a magical tool. Um, it, it requires a lot of, uh, it requires being really legit, basically. It means you've truly ingrained, you're truly ingraining good, healthy, uh, low calorie eating as a lifestyle yeah. and being very consistent with that. Okay. So, you uh, at the end of the contest prep, I yep. still had to do macro tracking to get to um, say the difference between six and five percent body fat. Yeah, and so, okay, so that was a beautiful overview of what's actually involved and the many facets of ad lib dieting. Uh, cool. Okay, one of the things you mentioned there was you know eat according to hunger. Now, every our listeners will be going, yeah, well, how the hell did you actually, you know, manage to get down to six percent or five percent? But you, you got to six mm -hmm. ad lib, like one would assume. You know, part of the dieting energy restriction, you're going to be hungry as a mofo 24-7. It's just, it is what it is. Mm. It varies from person to person, sure. But what did you, how did you differentiate, uh, like, is it the mindset or, like you said, you just, you know, tons of spices and, and killing the hunger pangs? I, uh, I suppose you have to be aware that that's going to be a part of the process and, and not react to them. Like, talk about when you started... Mm. I understand off-season, that all makes sense, but when it um, push comes to shove and you've got to start trimming the fat, how did that whole process unfold? Yeah, for me, uh, for a lot of people, mindset works really well in differentiating between psychological hunger and physical hunger, mm. um, which means that uh, physical hunger is the truly, you know, uh, in the Dutch we have, in Holland we have a saying, um, uh, hunger makes raw beans sweet. If you are truly hunger, you are hungry yeah. for everything, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Other things, you know, a craving or, um, yeah, you don't want any more soup, but, you know, you would like that pie. <laughs> That's not uh, physical hunger. That would be psychological hunger. Yeah. And um, yeah. differentiating between that is really important. Uh, for me, it doesn't work very well, though, because it seems that I don't have much psychological hunger. Uh, my, I, I'm, my lifestyle is really, really uh, consistent. I think I live... Um, an extremely healthy, um, consistent, truly walking the walk, kind of walking the talk yeah. uh, lifestyle in terms of nutrition, which means that I don't even see things like pizza and McDonald's as, as foods. Yeah. Uh, I never eat them. Uh, my cheap meals, my sole cheap meal basically is sushi, which, you know, is rice and fish. Um, so for me, it's not, that's not a really big concern. Um, but even then, when you're going to 6% body fat, uh, which most people cannot do at lip, 
Um, my appetite is indeed off the charts. I'm eating kilos of food a day, and you're left with maybe about 10 different food choices. Uh, I was in Brazil most of that time. So um, you have, what's it called? It's like a green kind of mix between a cucumber and a potato, and it's like 20 calories per 100 gram. Um, mm. Yama Yama, I think they called it. Um, well, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. You have foods like that, uh, mushrooms, a uh, lot of soup, um, tons and tons of spices. I ate so many spices, <laughs> um, especially things like chili, because uh, they can uh, suppress your hunger. That um, I actually managed to eat quite well in uh, India, where uh, if you're used to spicy food, there's like Mac there's like Western spicy for your global yeah. reference, yeah. which yeah. is not spicy at all if you're used to really spicy food. Yeah. Then you have sort of South American spicy, which for most people is um, burning your mouth hot. Mm. And then you have Indian spicy, <laughs> which is off the freaking charts. Sweating it out. If you're used to South, yeah, if you're used to South American spicy, Indian spicy is still on a completely different level. Ooh, I'm intrigued. It's, it's obscene. They they put they put chili in in candy. I'm not kidding. It's wow. it's like they're just finding ways to add more chili in food. <laughs> yeah. So sounds divine. Uh, I ate so much chili that I actually sort of uh, managed to eat in India uh, the normal traditional food. So wow. uh, yeah, you're talking about a pretty extreme diet, very limited in uh, in food selection, absolutely enormous quantity sizes. Uh, to be able to eat, you know, over six uh, kilo of food on a 2,000 calorie diet, mm. actually had to go to 1,800 because ad lib I just cannot, I cannot breach 2,000. So you know that at that point I did have to uh, accept uh, quite a, some regular hunger because mm. uh, 1,800 is just it's it's way below. I you know I'm I'm almost 90 kilos and 1,800 is just uh, why God why? Yeah, but uh, that's <laughs> just my wrist. metabolism and. Um, uh, then you're you're in hardcore uh, suffering mode, contest prep. Yeah. But up until then, I really like the uh, the lib approach. And if I ever do a um, show again, which business-wise is hard to uh, fit into my schedule, but then I'm probably going for men's physique and try to do it at lib all the way. Yeah, that's awesome. And I guess the a few key points there, Tommy, was uh, you know no what we would call shitty food choices that are going to induce horrific cravings and make the whole process much harder. Yes. Whole foods, lots of vegetables, you know, and, um, and all the things that we sort of say. You know, think about it like, yeah, if that's all you're eating, you could probably do what uh, Hanno was, was, was talking, talking about. about yeah. you know? And I think the key distinction he made at the start there about uh, intuitive dieting is mm. exactly right because your intuition is telling you to eat as much as you possibly can. Yes. So, it, you know, mm. it has to have a restriction. And I also think the a good point there, Menno, is the distinction between psychological and, yeah. and physical hunger yeah. and that people need to understand uh, from a more general pop perspective this is that even if they are eating very cleanly they have to go through periods of physical hunger yes. it's just it's part of the dieting process mm. Like mm. at lip at least you want to minimize a physical hunger but psychological hunger is, is going to occur and you need to learn yeah. to mm. uh, cope with that so embrace um, that you don't get it as much anymore yeah. Yes. And I, I suppose if you're eating such vast volumes of, of food, and uh, you know, it will really take the edge off that psychological hunger that you may be experiencing. Very cool. All right, um, Menno. So you, mm. it's a couple of weeks, and you'll be making your way from uh, Bali, heading out to Australia. Mm. Are you excited about the seminar tour? And, and, and what are you hoping that people will get out of the experience of spending a couple of days with you? 
Um, I'm going to talk about uh, my whole method, basically. It's uh, basically a crash course into uh, uh, the whole Bayesian bodybuilding method. Um, I'm going to expound mostly on the, the cooler stuff, like which I also like to talk about, like higher training frequency, yep. uh, ad libitum dieting, really how to implement that in practice, um, you know, give you templates, uh, some calculators. People also get a two-month two discount into the PT course because, you know, you got the crash course and then, then people want to do the, the whole extended course. Mm. Um, I think it's only fair that, you know, you, you've already seen a lot of the content, so you get a discount for that. Um, and it's really... Uh, I'm going to focus on being extremely comprehensive and just give it all, basically. And and one of the things that our listeners might uh, not be aware of, it's it's basically, I, I find the PT course pretty much everything you need to know as a, as a coach, really. You don't really, there's nothing that you wouldn't use from the uh, from the content, Tommy. Um, the PT course, is, you're not covering topics that eh, aren't that relevant. It's all just what you need to know to be a better coach. Mm. Uh, which I'm assuming the seminar would uh, encapsulate as well, uh, Minnow. Yeah, for sure. So it, the seminar is basically a crash course, uh, crash course version of the PT course. Yeah. Um, and which is all you need for uh, muscle hypertrophy and fat loss. Yeah. And I'm gonna talk a lot about strength because I think in my method, strength and muscle hypertrophy are, uh, in natural trainees at least, uh, quite tightly correlated. Yeah. Um, I think that the difference between Strength and size is mostly um, came across after uh, you know the, the advent of steroids, and now you have a lot of um, bodybuilders that are by no means weak. People say, you know, oh look at Kai Green, he's weak. No, he's much stronger than you are. <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know, you, you might expect that given his gargantuan size, he'd be even stronger. Mm. But uh, the classics, in the classics and most natural trainees, you can see that strength and size are pretty tightly correlated. Yeah. Awesome. But yeah, um, yeah I'll. I'll reserve that for a seminar all right cool 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 so tommy you want to rattle off those uh those dates again for his um uh, upcoming seminar in uh, sydney melbourne and perth yeah so three weeks uh, of seminars every weekend starting saturday september the 30th that's in sydney yep. saturday sunday then he's down in melbourne the saturday october the 7th yep. and then across to perth october the 14th that's at uh, Iron Game Fitness with Sam Hanna in Melbourne and uh, the, the Tough team with the Glossops over in Perth. Hey, guys. And uh, obviously at the uh, Icon, Icon Performance Health Centre in Sydney. And Menno, um, you haven't been to Australia before. I mean, are you going to spend some time travelling around and doing a bit of uh, gypsy-based activity? For sure, yeah. It's my first time in Australia. Been on my, uh, my go-to list for a long time. Mm. Uh, quite far off uh, all the other countries, so uh, I'm going to make sure to uh, milk it for all I can. Very yeah, well, nice. you know, there's going to be kangaroos hopping around the streets and uh, koala bears <laughs> in every gum tree, so uh, <laughs> you should have fun. All right, cool. So uh, for our listeners that uh, that want to, in the meantime, check out a little more about uh, yourself, you've, you've mentioned the, the PT course. Maybe a quick overview, quick, just that's a, a six-month course from memory. You can pay monthly. And then um, how can they, because uh, I know your Bayesian bodybuilding website, you've got a ton of stuff on there, articles, everything else. Maybe give our listeners, uh, if they're interested in hearing more or doing the PT course, um, let them know about that. Yep. Yeah, this, from a business perspective, would be the most important part of the talk. But right now, I actually have a live Q&A. Uh, so I'm just going to refer people. You can go to my website, BayesianBodybuilding.com. Then there's a, a huge button somewhere that says education or PT course. Yep. You click on it, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Beautiful. Oh, that was Great. short and yeah. sweet. Excellent. Yeah. So just basic bodybuilding. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> Done and dusted. Yeah. Nice one. <laughs> awesome. 
All right, man. Uh, absolute pleasure from from my end. Um, I look forward to chatting again in our little chats uh, uh, next week. But um, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, that was fantastic, man. I appreciate your time. And uh, we're both very much looking forward to seeing you uh, out here in Australia, man. It's exciting times. Yeah, with your, your big fiery red uh, Gandalf beard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to bring the magic. Bring the magic, exactly. All right, mate, have a good day over in Bali, and uh, we'll look forward to chatting again soon. All right, talk to you later, man. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. Bye. You just learn something new every day. How about the nicotine gum? Sorry, mate. I'm just (laughs) just turning something down. What are you saying, mate? (laughs) Chunking at reception. No, but we'll give that a go. Mate, I am. I'm always one to push the limits. And uh, anything that's a little grey, a little murky, you know, I'll embrace it. I'll go, uh, I think you said four milligram. I'll go, you know, four pieces of four milligram gum. Mm. Touche. I'm looking forward to having uh, a podcast co-host who has a nicotine addiction. Yes. Because that's coming just around the corner. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, but no, that's uh, really interesting, that world of things, and certainly the way that men are... tropic type stuff are you talking uh, well, about? Or? Yeah, just uh, that approach to cognitive function, getting the most out of your productivity, yeah. setting your day up, getting the yeah, structure yeah, right. Yeah, like yeah. That's, uh, that's right up your street. I'm really big on that for making progress in all areas of life. Mm. Uh, the frequency parameters broaden. I thought mm-hmm. that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, total training sessions per week, we know that. But uh, frequency per body part and then per exercise, mm. you know, that's where the magic happens. Yeah, and uh, I think he said like sometimes one uh, one set for those super fast twitch uh, mm. dominant guys, but usually two uh, and you're good to go. So, yeah, some really a bit of a crash course on high frequency. So really cool there. Yeah. So, really looking, yeah, looking forward to him. It's, it's going to be a big one. Exciting. If you want to get on board, he's out here in a couple of weeks, starting in Sydney, then Melbourne and Perth. It starts mm. on September the 30th, and then each successive weekend after that. Go to Icon Performance Health yep. to uh, book your tickets, and, well, have a lovely day. Yes. <laughs>